Do you remember this issue of Time magazine? It says it's from March of 2009. It's got Donald Trump on the cover and underneath the caption, Trump is hitting on all fronts, even TV. There's another caption below that headline. The Apprentice is a television smash. That magazine cover reportedly hung on the wall in at least five of Donald Trump's golf clubs at the beginning of his presidency. There was just one problem. It was not real. As Washington Post reporter David Fahrenhold uncovered in June of 2017, Donald Trump was not on the cover of Time magazine in March of 2009, but he had been hanging fake magazine covers in his golf clubs to make it look like he was. Just to be clear here, Trump wanted so badly to be on the cover of Time magazine that he invented a fake Time cover all about himself and hung it up in public in multiple places all over the country. That forgotten little detail from Trump's presidency became relevant again today after the Department of Justice issued its latest court filing in the ongoing court battle over access to the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago. The filing included this shocking pictures showing some of the top secret and classified documents the FBI found during that search. Documents clearly labeled top secret and SCI for sensitive compartmented information. As experts have noted, none of those documents bear markings to indicate that they have been declassified, which is a typical part of the declassification process. But those documents are also sitting alongside what appears to be, drumroll please, a box with a framed Time magazine cover, a real one this time, featuring Trump when he was president. Now, we don't know for sure why the FBI placed the documents next to that box with the framed Time cover. Maybe Trump's filing system is alphabetical. T for Time magazine and also T for top secret. Who can know? But what is clear from this photo is that Donald Trump kept some of our nation's most important secrets alongside his embarrassingly vain mementos. And that was what Republicans decided they were going to focus on in order to defend Donald Trump. After the photo was released, the official Twitter account for the Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee tweeted, that Time magazine cover was a huge threat to national security. Eye roll emoji. That Time magazine cover. Sure. Never mind the six documents with big, bold letters saying secret and top secret. The real scandal here is that the FBI maybe took the former president's framed magazine covers. In their defense, Trump's allies don't really have a lot to work with right now because this latest filing from the Department of Justice is damning. And it reveals a lot about how far Donald Trump was willing to go in order to keep those sensitive documents from being turned over to the FBI. Prior to the search, Trump's lawyers had agreed to keep all of the sensitive documents in a locked storage room at Mar-a-Lago. But according to the Justice Department's filing, quote, the government developed evidence that government records were likely concealed and removed from the storage room and that efforts were likely taken to obstruct the government's investigation. The Justice Department also claims it found classified documents inside Trump's desk drawer alongside his passports. The filing describes how Trump's lawyers in June claimed to have conducted a diligent search of Trump's premises and turned over 38 classified documents. They assured investigators those were all of the classified documents and that none remained. And yet, despite those assurances, the FBI found over 100 more classified documents that were still being kept at Donald Trump's home when they executed a search warrant two months later.
The Justice Department writes, quote, that the FBI, in a matter of hours, recovered twice as many documents with classification markings as the diligent search that the former president's counsel and other representatives had weeks to perform, that that calls into serious question the representations made by Trump's lawyers and casts doubt on the extent of cooperation in this matter. The Justice Department made it painfully clear in its filing that it suspects the former president of willfully obstructing its investigation and withholding these documents. Now, tonight, about an hour ago, Trump's team submitted their own brief to the court, responding to the DOJ's filing late last night. And surprise, there is not much in there that responds to the very comprehensive case the Justice Department lays out regarding potential obstruction of justice. Instead, there is a lot of ink spilled on the need for a special master, an independent third party, to review the documents found at Mar-a-Lago. Never mind that they shouldn't have been there to begin with. By way of an example, Trump's team argues the government now has a temerity to argue that any involvement by a special master will interfere with the now ongoing intelligence community review of the materials. Left unchecked, the DOJ will impugn, leak, and publicize selective aspects of their investigation with no recourse for Donald Trump, but to somehow trust the self-restraint of currently unchecked, quote-unquote, investigators. It's worth noting that the reason the Department of Justice has made any aspects of this investigation public is because Donald Trump urged the DOJ to make said aspects public. Tomorrow, a judge will consider both sides' arguments to determine whether to appoint that special master. Joining us now is Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Barb, thanks so much for joining us. I have many questions about this latest filing and the need for a special master. Uh, Trump's team is unsurprisingly vociferous in its argument here. Um, it predominantly focuses on why Trump deserves a special master here and very much um, lays criticism on the shoulders of the Department of Justice, uh, suggesting that this is a politically motivated and the word witch hunt isn't in there, but it is the subtext of this. What did you make of the filing and how likely is it that we're going to see a third party appointed uh, and, and Trump's grant wishes granted? Alice, there wasn't much new in this document other than, as you say, some insults uh, hurled at the Justice Department. We saw in that initial brief the request that they wanted a special master to have an independent review of these materials. But some of the things that were in the government's response, I just don't think that the Trump team has an answer for. I mean, number one, it's already been reviewed. They already went through all of it. So in some ways, it would be futile to have a special master review this. But also, having somebody intervene now at this stage would slow down the need to do this damage assessment. So there's a real harm. You know, it's, it's some, sometimes you might say, well, all things being equal, why don't we just have a special master? Because that will create this uh, appearance of fairness, and it will silence some of the critics. But there is a real cost to that. Uh, and, and that isn't really addressed here. W what they say is that those two things are inconsistent. But I don't think they are. What they're saying is the FBI did the initial review of this to segregate out items protected by the attorney-client privilege, but now they need to do a separate damage assessment. And so uh, I, I think that's the reason that the Justice Department opposes this. But nonetheless, uh, the judge may decide that an abundance of caution is appropriate here. I think if I were looking at this, the law would favor not appointing a special master because, as the government argues, this isn't Trump's pr property anyway. This is property that belongs to the United States. His assertions of executive privilege are, are really without any merit. And as the Justice Department argued, to the extent he has any, which 
which he doesn't, it would, it's a qualified privilege and it would be over uh, outweighed by this need to assess the damage. Um, yeah, there's a question about what the judge does, though, right? This is um, a Trump appointed judge. Uh, and there is something to be said for, as, as one legal mind said to us, crossing your T's and dotting your I's. And if Trump is making this very vehement case, suggesting this is somehow politically motivated, they make note in their filing that Trump may be a candidate in the 2024 presidential election, just for optics alone, could you see a special master appointment likely even in this instance? Well, I'm going to give the judge the benefit of the doubt of acting in good faith. The mere fact that Donald Trump appointed her, I don't think, uh, means that she will uh, have a thumb on the scale uh, in his favor. And also, he is uh, a likely presidential candidate in 2024. That's two years from now. And so appointing a special master now really has no impact on uh, the outcome of that election. Most of the arguments he raises are really arguments that one would raise if this evidence were to be introduced in a trial against him. And he, he conflates uh, a request for return of property with a request to suppress evidence. He talks about how his Fourth Amendment rights were violated. The time for that argument is if charges are filed and he receives this in discovery and the government expresses an intent to use it against him in a trial. That's the moment to make those arguments, not now. So uh, I, I would think that, uh, you know, if I were a betting person, I would say no special master will be granted here. But I suppose if the judge wants to, uh, out of an abundance of caution, uh, and err on the side of fairness for Donald Trump, and perhaps uh, an effort to blunt the criticism, then perhaps she'll grant one. But, you know, in my view, I think Donald Trump and his lawyers are going to find something to argue about and criticize anyway. And so why give them something that when there is no legal merit for it? You know, the Justice Department seemed to almost foresee this in their filing late last night. And they said, look, if they're, I mean, I'm paraphrasing wildly here, but if a special master is appointed, their concern is really that it slows this whole thing down. And that the review, the um, director of national intelligence review to make sure that these these documents are not actually a threat to national security, that that review continue um, without any further slowdowns. And so they've asked for a number of sort of preconditions if a third party is appointed, that, that both parties mutually agree on this person, that this person has, you know, special classified information access, that they only uh, review a limited number of these documents. Do you think that, I mean, who has the upper hand here in terms of like the bargaining in terms of who gets to be the special master and what his or her purview is. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the Justice Department does something lawyers do all the time, which is to argue in the alternative. They cite a number of reasons why they think a special master is not appropriate here, not necessary, and actually har harmful to the interests of the United States. But then they say, but if in the event, Judge, you are persuaded that a special master should be uh, appointed here, at the very least, here are some conditions that you ought to consider. And one of those is, as you suggest, making sure this happens quickly, appointing somebody who already has a clearance at the highest levels to be, to review these materials. Keep in mind, in their own filing, they said that some of the FBI counterintelligence agents had to have their own clearances upgraded to review this material because it includes special access programs, which is the very highest level. It's not a huge number of people out there who have these clearances. And what they don't want to have is have some lawyer that Donald Trump found on 
on TV yesterday say, this is the guy who's going to review it, and it takes six months to get the clearance. They want somebody who already has a clearance that they can mutually agree upon, and they've asked for a deadline of September 30th so that they can be sure this is done quickly. Because every day, Alex, that this assessment is not done is a day when perhaps the life of a source overseas who is reporting information could be at risk. And so it's really important that this be done quickly. That's why I think the uh, the equities here really favor not appointing a special master. The filter has already been done. And if to, to the extent uh, this information gets introduced at a trial, that would be the point at which Donald Trump could file a motion to suppress this evidence. What about, I mean, there are other characters in this that are facing uh, some certain or uncertain legal legal jeopardy, and they include Trump's legal team. There is the Trump team is pushing back on the the meeting that occurred on January, sorry, June 3rd between Evan Corcoran, Christina Bob representing Trump and Jay Bratt uh, representing the Department of Justice. That's the sort of infamous meeting where the DOJ goes down to Mar-a-Lago and is like, hey, is this everything, you guys? And Christina Bob signs a document, an oath saying, yes, this is everything. In the filing tonight, Trump's team effectively says that meeting has been significantly mischaracterized in the government's response. Now, I wonder, and that's, a, again, a, a very tight summary of a very long document. Um, what are the implications of uh, for Trump's legal team if, in fact, they were not being forthcoming with the DOJ over these documents and whether or not the feds had everything indeed that was at Mar-a-Lago? Yeah, well, what we know based on the most recent DOJ pleading is, you know, there was this lengthy back and forth where the Justice Department was asking for all these documents back. The archives was asking for all of these documents back. And they got 15 boxes in January. But when they went through that, they realized that there were still some missing. And so the, Jay Brett is the chief of the counterintelligence division at the Justice Department. He personally goes down to Mar-a-Lago and says, we mean everything. Hand it over. Turn out your pockets. Let's go. All of it. They hand over one envelope. And then they attest, that's it. And he says, I want to look in those boxes in the storage room. And they say, nope, you can't look at it. This is it. Swear to God, it's everything. And they turn it over. Now, we don't know what it is, but some information that is behind those redaction bars caused the Justice Department to believe that there was more. And a judge found probable cause to believe that there was more. And in fact, in August, when they went down there, they retrieved 33 more boxes of documents. And so for the people who attested on that day in June that there were no more, they could be in some very serious trouble for obstruction of justice. Now, you'd have to show that they knew what was happening. So it's either the lawyers or it's the person who provided information to the lawyers, which is Donald Trump himself. The fact that they found classified documents in his personal office next to his passport suggests to me that Donald Trump himself has some very serious legal problems here. And the New York Times is saying that Trump's lawyers may become witnesses <laughs> or targets in this investigation, which is not really what you want to hear about when you're in the middle of an ongoing investigation and you're Donald Trump. Yeah, you know, um, an interesting parallel to this happened in the Paul Manafort case, where um, he was charged, his lawyer had made representations about uh, registering as a foreign agent, saying that he wasn't. And it turns out that he had lied to the lawyer. And so uh, the lawyer was able to uh, testify against him through the crime fraud exception. She was granted immunity, and she testified about what Paul Manafort had said to her. I could imagine a similar scenario here, where the lawyers are uh, given immunity and compelled to testify. 
And a judge would have to make a finding that the crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege applies here. That is, that they're using it as a shield to cover for criminal activity. If that's the case, they would have a choice to make. They could testify, uh, or uh, they, if they said that Trump is not involved, they themselves could find themselves as the defendants here. Or it could be that all of them are charged in a conspiracy to obstruct justice. I mean, to be Trump's lawyer is to find yourself crossing lines that you never thought you would. Witness Michael Cohen, Ty Cobb, Pat Cipollone, and maybe Christina Bob and Evan Corcoran. Mar Barbara McQuaid, a former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District in Michigan, thank you for your time and expertise this evening. Okay, in a minute, we are going to be joined by one of the reporters who has been breaking all kinds of news in the Trump investigation. Carol Lenning joins us live here on set coming up next. And big news tonight out of Alaska where a Democrat, a Democrat has defeated Sarah Palin for Congress, becoming that state's first Native American in the U.S. Congress. Plus, we will be joined live by the chair of the January 6th committee who represents Jackson, Mississippi, Congressman Benny Thompson. A lot to get to. Stay with us. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. One day after Donald Trump filed his lawsuit last week calling for a special master in the case of the FBI search at his Florida home, The Washington Post published this piece entitled FBI's Mar-a-Lago Search Followed Months of Resistance, Delay by Trump. It documented Trump's year and a half long effort to stall and prevent the handover of documents to the National Archives and Justice Department investigators. Quote, some material recovered in the search is considered extraordinarily sensitive to people familiar with the search said because it could reveal carefully guarded secrets about U.S. intelligence gathering methods. One of them said the information is among the most sensitive of secrets we hold. The piece relied on conversations with multiple people with direct knowledge of the investigation, as well as court filings to that date. Now, subsequent legal filings by the Justice Department have shown the deep legal exposure faced by the former president and some of his lawyers. That Washington Post previewed why, noting, pre previewed why, noting that two Trump White House lawyers with the requisite security clearances who were invited to view some of the material by the archives earlier this year notably declined to look at that material. As the Post reported, in Trump's inner circle, concern has been arising since June that the former president has created legal jeopardy for himself, according to multiple people in his orbit. Mar-a-Lago is a big problem, one of the people said. Put that on a T-shirt. Since then, the release of the FBI affidavit in last night's DOJ filing laying out instances of obstruction and Trump's lack of cooperation, well, those have only made things worse. 
Joining us now is one of the writers of that Washington Post scoop, as well as several others since the start of this investigation. Carol Lenning is a Pulitzer Prize winning national investigative reporter for The Washington Post and co-author of I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's catastrophic final year. Um, Carol, the catastrophe continues well into uh, the post-presidency, it seems. Let's just first start. I mean, that piece that you wrote it was so presaged this moment, right? Mar-a-Lago is a big problem. And I just want to get your reaction to the filing we received about an hour and change ago, which is seems to me more like a political document than a legal document, right? It's just like full of buzzwords that I'm sure Trump's allies will use. The word witch hunt isn't in there, but it basically suggests this is all part of a political ploy on the part of the deep state. Did you, how did you read it? Very similarly, and I'm really glad you note the political rhetoric and the optics of this filing, which, as you note yourself, it is part of a pattern of how Donald Trump deals with federal and other courts. You know, his idea is, let me communicate the way I want to communicate to my base. He still thinks of himself as the president. And these filings end up being his way of saying, I'm a victim. You're next. And I don't have to deal with all this legal mumbo jumble and I don't have to make a coherent legal finding or claim before the court. All I have to do is convince the people I care about that this is wrong and that it's politicized and it's all Joe Biden coming for me, even though he doesn't actually provide evidence of this. You know, what our story said, uh, and it did presage the DOJ filing the other day, what our story said over and over again is even inside Mar-a-Lago, people who advised Donald Trump were worried from June 3rd that this is exactly where we would end up, that the biggest legal jeopardy for Donald Trump was no longer potentially inciting a riot, potentially a conspiracy to start up January 6th, misleading the public, that the biggest legal issue he had was Mm. the one of his own making, uh, refusing to turn over these records. And now, according to the DOJ, he and or, and I stress he and or, aides that he relied upon may have hidden and tried to conceal classified records he had been resisting in turning them over to the government. These are the people's records, right? Yeah. They don't, he, his famous phrase, they're mine, is just patently untrue. The other thing that this document does is potentially slow down this investigation, right? I mean, that is actually a meaningful consequence of all of this. And it seems to fit into Trump's pattern, which is delay, obfuscate, muddy the waters, and then claim victory. Is, do you think that's possible in this case, right? Not, not only does he not have the protection of the presidency and he has a very compromised legal team, but the reality of the facts is such that every time we get another step forward, the facts look worse for Donald Trump. Every stage of this, the more information we get, the more damning the case is against Donald Trump. Well, absolutely. If you constantly have sort of a shifting sands legal strategy, you know, first it was we turned everything over. Right. Uh, My lawyers have reviewed, done a diligent search. And here are our 15 boxes. Oh, wait, that's not the totality. Here are some more records we found. Now we've turned everything over. And then the next argument was, well, we de- the president, before he left, declassified everything. He had a standing order that none of his national security officials 
that I interviewed knew anything about. A standing order in 2020 that anything he took to his home and residence was automatically declassified. That's and, and none of, by the way, none of these documents bore marks of declassification, none of the documents they found. None of them. In fact, those color-coded pages actually really sent a chill up my spine because the color coding, forgive me leaving your good question. No, no, leave co- a, go ahead, go ahead, <laughs> stray. <laughs> the color coding is, you know, exactly what national security officials were warning us reporters who are working on this story. They said, if there's a blue, if there's a if there's a red, then I'm worried. But if I see an orange cover on any of these documents, which is top secret, secure, compartmented information, if any of those have orange on them, that's a warning to every law enforcement agent, every national security official who has any contact with that record. This has to be in a locked safe right away. That's the picture, right? And, and one wonders not only why he had those documents down there, But who else saw them? I mean, these are documents that we know from reporting were stashed in closets, in the desk. We know other lawyers relating to other investigations were looking for material in and around Mar-a-Lago. What was so interesting is in the FBI's filing, they said that the people tasked with reviewing these documents, some of them were not even cleared to look at this level of secured document. That's how tight these secrets were kept. Such an important point. You know, these particular programs, or forgive me, documents, had cover sheets that had a coding in addition to top secret, in addition to secure compartmented information, the holiest of holy of national security secrets, things that if revealed will cause imminent and grave danger to our national security. What American isn't a little bit, you know, shook by that. But in addition to all that, these materials were expected to put human intel sources, their lives, their their human welfare in danger if released. So if this is just sitting on a carpet in Mar-a-Lago. Or in a carton. The president seems very, former president seems very intent on stipulating that he did not leave these documents on the carpet. He had them in a carton. Never mind if that carton was in his shoe closet, whatever. Whatever. Nonetheless. But remember, in, in in the White House, There is a security official who, when they take these records and show them to the sitting president, not the former president in his club, they have a document that they keep that says, this is the purpose for which I withdrew this record. And now there is a record to make sure I returned it to the secure locked box. But but your other question, we don't want to get away from it, which is the things are getting worse. The shifting sands of the arguments that Trump and his team have made have now put two people who said they were lawyers for Donald Trump in serious jeopardy. I'm told by sources that Christina Bob will automatically be a witness. She will be asked for testimony. Um, we'll see about Evan Corcoran. He is still a lawyer, but we already now know that Team Trump recognizes Christina Bob's in trouble because they're no longer According to our reporting at The Washington Post and my colleagues, they're no longer going to have her representing Donald Trump on any motions. She's not going to be signing anything. And I think Evan is going to be in that situation not too long from now. Oh, to be a Trump lawyer, which is what I said at the end of the last block, but it can't be stated enough. It's amazing anybody wants to represent him at this point. And yet the investigation continues. Carol Letting, national investigative reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you for your time and wisdom and reporting and everything else. Carol, it's great to see you. Thank you, Alex. 
Breaking news out of Alaska, where Sarah Palin, yes, that Sarah Palin, has just lost her bid for Congress to a Democrat. We will be joined by political reporter Mark Leibovich for more on that stunning result and Republican reaction to the DOJ's filing on Donald Trump. And later, we will talk live with Mississippi Congressman Benny Thompson, chair of the January 6th committee. Stay with us. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. The results are in. Sarah Palin, who was once considered the future of the Republican Party, has lost a special election to represent the state of Alaska in Congress. And she lost to a Democrat named Mary Peltola. It is a huge upset for the former half-term Republican governor of the state, who was handpicked by Republican presidential candidate John McCain to be his running mate. Democrat Mary Peltola will be the first Alaska native in Congress and the first woman to represent Alaska in the House of Representatives, taking the at-large seat that was once occupied by the late Republican Congressman Don Young, who held it for 50 years. Peltola will be the first Democrat to join Alaska's congressional delegation since 2014, when Democratic Senator Mark Begich lost his seat to Republican Dan Sullivan. So how did this happen? How did a Democrat win in deep red Alaska? The special election to fill Don Young's seat was actually held two weeks ago on August 16th, also the first night of this program. It was the first time Alaska used a ranked choice voting system in which voters ranked their candidates in order of preference. And when candidates are eliminated, the votes that would have gone to them are instead redistributed to the next ranked candidate that the voters preferred. Going into today, Democrat Mary Paltola was leading with about 40 percent of the vote, Sarah Palin at 31 percent and Begich at 28 percent. Not a single candidate had won a majority of the vote. So the race went into an instant runoff election in which the last place candidate, Nick Begich, was nixed and his voters were redistributed to Peltola or Palin. In case you were wondering, yes, Alaska will still use the ranked choice voting process in November's midterm elections. Joining me now is Mark Leibovich, staff writer for The Atlantic and author of Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Well, this seems sort of like maybe the price of submission has been called for in this race. Mark, <laughs> I mean, what Sarah Palin, I must read uh, her statement after her loss this evening. Ranked choice voting was sold as the way to make elections better reflect the will of the people. As Alaska and America now sees, the exact opposite is true. Though we're disappointed in this outcome, Alaskans know I'm the last one who will ever retreat. Instead, I'm going to reload. Because what would be what would a concession statement be without a gun metaphor? Um, Mark, oh, why do you think man. Sarah Palin lost tonight? 
Well, um, you know, I, I think she comes with a lot of baggage, obviously. I mean, I think there is a larger conversation about whether this speaks to a larger trend line. Um, in the midterms, I mean, I think since the Dobbs decision, Democrats have overperformed in a number of races now. I mean, obviously, Sarah Palin is is a, um, you know, she's a sui—we we talked about this during the break, and I'm going to get it right. She's a <laughs> sui generis character, right? She is not necessarily representative of a, your, your generic— a congressional candidate in another district somewhere in the country. But having said that, I mean, it's a really troubling trend line and result for Republicans in this, you know, these last few weeks, partly because it's also another celebrity kind of quasi-freak show candidate that comes from the Trump tradition, the Trump mold, that voters seem to be showing time and time again they're pretty sick of. So that, that's got to be problematic also. But bottom line, I mean, this seat's been red for since about like 1620 or whenever. Um, and now it's it's flipping red, uh, blue. So that's a bottom line good night for the Democrats. I mean, Nick Begich, her opponent, is saying that she lost not because of ranked choice voting, but because her unfavorable rating is so high. It bears mentioning that on August 8th, the day the DOJ um, searched Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump was doing a tele-rally for none other than Sarah Palin. And one wonders with right. whether it is responsible to extrapolate lessons about Donald Trump in all of this. I mean, it is worth noting that we have some reporting that Trump himself may be delaying the announcement of a 2024 presidential bid until after Labor Day. Initially, he had said he would do it around Labor Day, which is in like you know, 48 hours from now, depending on what time zone you live in. Um, do you think that it is wise? Do you think it is wise to to like try and find a lesson about Trump in all of this and and, and all of this world? I, I, I will say. I, I think it speaks to a larger exhaustion with the swirl, right? I mean, I was talking to actually a Republican congressman today, and and he was saying, do you believe we're still talking about this and this guy and, like, the various legal vicissitudes and, you know, whether, you know, Sarah Palin's going to concede and is he gonna, she going to back off and is, like, she going to do a Trump style of contesting the election? I mean, it's one thing after another. And you do sense a certain weariness with, with not only this story, but just sort of the ongoing distraction that this is sort of done to the Republican Party and sort of the it, it's blocking out everything else. So, yeah, I don't know. I think that's a trend line that's that's worth um, worrying about if you're a Republican. Do you talk you talk to Republicans. Uh, there is a, a sort of behavioral pattern we have noticed in the last few weeks, which is a lot of these more and I will officially turn this wackadoo candidates endorsed by Trump, right. have pivoted after their primaries and are scrubbing their websites of some of their most controversial statements and positions, whether it's policy positions on things like reproductive reproductive choice or positions on whether or not the 2020 election was stolen. Do you think that right. f this pivot matters to base voters? I mean, I just think the very, I mean, we all accept to some degree what, that once the primary yeah. is over, politicians pivot to a more palatable message for the middle. But the, the yeah. Trump base is so incensed and so enraged. Does it matter to them that their candidates are trying to be less Trumpy in a general? You would think. I mean, it's one thing when you are trying to sort of finesse an issue, right, and maybe sort of go around the margins of a, of a, you know, the nuances of your belief on something. But when you have a cult of personality, it's pretty hard to move away from the personality while you know still maintaining the support of the cult, right? So, uh, at this, I mean, you can't just say like, oh, I now think that the election might have been not stolen. Maybe. I mean, I don't think that really fools anyone. And, and frankly, just sort of, it's one thing to sort of pivot sort of elegantly. It's another thing to sort of describe 
scrubbed your website of your previous you know position on on abortion rights and expect no one's going to notice. So and it, I think you know to most people it would be viewed as a uh, insult to their intelligence and to the voters in general. There's not a lot of gray area as far as whether you think the 2020 election were stolen. But good luck to those Republicans who are trying to find it. Mark Leibovich, staff writer at The Atlantic, my friend, thank you for being with me tonight. Thanks for having me, Alex. Up next, Congressman Benny Thompson joins us live to talk about the crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, where his constituents still have no drinking water this evening. That is all because of a water system in disrepair, in large part because of decades of racism and racist policy. We will talk to him about that and the January 6th committee. We'll be right back. On Monday, when the Republican governor of Mississippi made the stark announcement that the water system in the capital city of Jackson had failed, there was someone notably absent from the dais, the Democratic mayor of Jackson. Local news outlets later reported that he had not been invited to the governor's news conference. And although the mayor has since argued that both the city and the state are working together, it seems quite apparent that there is a disconnect between state and local leadership. And that breakdown could not come at a worse time. The water crisis facing Jackson comes at a point in which the city is already grappling with a dire set of circumstances. One in four residents live in poverty. And in some of the hardest hit parts of Jackson, the average household makes just $25,000 a year. In some cases, affected affected households are pulling in just $15,000 annually. Since the year 2000, the annual median household income in Jackson has dropped about $6,500 which amounts to a whopping 15%. Meanwhile, these are the residents who are being asked to keep afloat a water infrastructure system that is in some areas more than 100 years old. The city is very plainly dealing with an eroded and shrinking tax base, as well as a crumbling water system. And here is how the state has responded. The governor famously vetoed a bipartisan bill that would have helped both poor people in Jackson pay their water bills, while also helping the city collect much needed water revenue. He did so because he was concerned about giving the impression that, quote, the government has free money floating around to pay for all of these things. In addition, the state legislature killed a bill that would have allowed Jackson to raise a city sales tax by 1% in order to help pay for much-needed sewer repairs. That bill was tanked after the Republican House Speaker publicly expressed his doubt about the measure, saying that it created a dangerous precedent for other cities in the state. This sort of inaction is indicative of how the state has dealt with Jackson's decades-long water problem. And now the city is grappling with yet another period of acute crisis, one that is affecting nearly every part of daily life. Without access to drinking water, business owners all across the city are wondering how long they can keep their doors open. Jackson State University's football team was forced to move its players to hotels so they can have access to toilets and showers as they prepare for their season opener this weekend. One of Jackson's hospitals that relies on city water is having to operate its facility with water tankers to ensure that its patients are adequately cared for. And parents are worried about how they will care for their newborn children as they queue for rations of bottled water, water that is needed for everything from bathing those children to mixing formula. This is life in Jackson, Mississippi right now. What, if anything, can be done to help? 
Joining us now is Mississippi Congressman Benny Thompson, who represents a large part of Jackson. He is also chairman of the January 6th committee. And we should note that Congressman Thompson was the only member of Mississippi's entire House delegation to vote for the federal infrastructure bill that brought badly needed funds to his state. Congressman Thompson, thank you for being here tonight. I am sorry on behalf of the rest of America that this is happening to the city of Jackson. It is a crisis and it is inexcusable. Um, Can you first enlighten us as to what the Republican-led legislature has done vis-a-vis Jackson's problems? It just seems, at least on the outside looking in, that they have not done as much as they could have to help the people of Jackson maintain and upgrade the infrastructure they so badly need. Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Alex. Jackson, Mississippi is the capital city of the state of Mississippi. Government. It's the seat of government for our state. Uh, When you come to our capital city, uh, it's very historic. But like a lot of big cities, uh, the population is predominantly minority. And uh, the mayor and city council is predominantly minority. And they have to look for opportunities to keep the city afloat. Everything you outline uh, in your monologue before you introduce me is what most cities in our state do when they need to generate revenue. It's just that every time the city of Jackson would put forth similar methods, uh, that always be another issue. And so it's disheartening for a person like me who vote to bring money to my state that desperately need it and see Republican elected officials do just the opposite of what the monies were intended to do. We need help. Our water system is antiquated. Uh, There's no doubt about it. In order to do it and get it right, we have to have help. Uh, President Biden, uh, as you know, signed a disaster declaration that will help us tremendously, but it won't fix the entire problem. Uh, The perception that federal, state, and local people are working together uh, that's not true. Uh, everything that you see uh, it without me representing Jackson or without the mayor who's elected in Jackson is true. Our governor decides to do things on his own, which is unfortunate. Uh, we help get the disaster declaration because it's the right thing to do. So we want our governor to say, look, Mayor Lumumba, Congressman Thompson will sit down and work this out together. Uh, I'm optimistic with this declaration. It requires cooperation. Mm. So if we're going to ask for FEMA's help, FEMA will be at the table saying, look, the cavalry is here. Help is here. Now let's get this done. Chairman, I got to ask you, this is a problem that we see happening in majority black cities all over the country, whether it's Flint, whether it's Baltimore, whether it's Washington, D.C., whether it's Jackson. And we have in your state a white Republican led state house, many of whom the most powerful members live outside of the city. This isn't their problem. I mean, do you feel like this is the legacy of structural racism? How do you look at this and how do you look at the, the color lines which so clearly inform these crises? Well, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. I don't know of any white-run city that's a capital city 
that's being treated like Jackson, Mississippi is. Uh, we can fix it, but we need our Republican elected officials who have been receiving the largest of the federal money coming from Washington to grow their cities. Uh, their highways are better. Their water systems are better. The entire infrastructure of the suburban communities are being developed at the expense of the inner city. They use the inner city's population to get the money, and then they spend the money in the suburbs. And so what's happening here with Jackson now is the mayors are struggling. The mayor of Jackson is struggling because the resources that he so desperately need and the 150 plus thousand individuals in the city who also need it, uh, that money is going to the suburbs. That's not how it should go. And uh, I actually shared that with the president today, that if monies are being sent to states and those monies are not going to the neediest of the people, we have to clear it up. It's not, it's not right. And so we're going to work with the governor. I look forward uh, to meeting with him in person. Uh, you know, the conference yeah. calls are one thing. But you have to meet an individual across the table, eye to eye, and work it out. So we are struggling in Jackson. Uh, we have been on a boil water late alert for over a month. Yes. Now we have some quality issues uh, in our city where uh, our schools are not open. They're virtual. Yes. And so our governor, with the help of the federal government, we can get this done. But you can't use a double standard for Jackson. What's good for the suburbs is good, it's good for, for the city. We you don't know, have to have a difference. Congressman, we wish you the best of luck in solving a crisis that should not be happening in America in the year 2022. Mississippi Congressman, Chairman Benny Thompson, thank you so much for your time and for all your efforts. We will be right back. Thank you. That does it for us tonight. We will see you again tomorrow.